0: Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for being with me this morning.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out, We're Excited to chat.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. I like to start these conversations by asking you about sort of a seminal moment in your current role. And I, I saw that your current role is related to CARES government advocacy in the U.S., but for four years or so, you were the director of CARES Learning Tours. Are, are you still involved with the Learning Tours?
1: Yes. So in my new role, I oversee our government relations team as well as our Learning Tours team. So okay. expanded, but still, still leading the Learning Tours experiences.
0: Great. And I, I was fascinated by the concept of a Learning Tour because I think it's one thing to try to get lawmakers or other actors on board with certain initiatives that you have, but it's another thing to actually bring them to a place where they can appreciate, where they can fully appreciate the impact that those programs have. And so, I wanted to delve into the the learning programs experience for you and ask you if there was perhaps a, a moment on a particular learning tour where you felt like that was fulfilling work to you, where you felt like, the dignitaries you were hosting were were really impacted by that opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the good thing is is you you have those moments on every trip, and you can you can see them happen in front of you where the light bulb goes off. You know? mm-hmm. And that's really our goal is to just facilitate an environment where there can be genuine, real dialogue between community members and folks in power in the U.S. and then step back right? It's not our job to tell the stories of the program participants. It's our job to to let them speak for themselves. And that's when the real magic happens. So I'll tell one story in particular. We did a learning tour to Haiti. We've done a couple to Haiti. And it was with a group of faith-based leaders that were uh, fairly conservative. And the focus was on maternal and child health. And a huge priority for CARES programming, but also our advocacy related to maternal child health is international family planning, because all of the evidence shows that is one of the most effective ways to save women's lives is when they healthfully time and space their pregnancies. And we visited a community about an hour and a half outside of Port-au-Prince and a USAID clinic had just been built in that community a couple years back. And so we started at the clinic and did a tour of the services. And then we walked with one of the community health workers on her rounds as she visited homes. And on those rounds, we met a mother-daughter duo The mother was kind of in her mid fifties. The daughter was in her early thirties and the daughter had grown up with the clinic and the mother had not. And the mother had 11 children and talked about the strain that that put on her body, the strain that that put on her financial resources, the support and the aid that they needed to be able to send all of their, their children to school and how she, of course, left her family and left her children, but it was never a choice. It was never a decision that she would have 11 children. It was, that was the option, the only option. Conversely, we heard from her daughter who was 30 and still yet had had to have her first child. Mm-hmm. So one generation, that massive shift because this clinic and community health workers had opened up down the road and started doing daily visits where they educated them on family planning. And you could see the delegation just jaw dropped. And the 30-year-old, the daughter said, I want kids, I'm excited to be a mother, but I can't afford them right now. And so I'm focused on my school and when I'm able to afford my children, I will I will start my family. And she had that choice because this clinic had moved to this village. And just that incredible shift in one generation, mm-hmm. uh, I think the delegation could not stop talking about it. And that's the sweet spot. I can go around and I can tell skeptics how important family planning is all day, but those women telling their story is what's going yeah. on Yeah,
0: that Yeah, that is a wonderful story. I, I wonder when those faith-based leaders came to those conclusions, what's sort of the next step for them? I mean, do they... Oftentimes on the learning tours, do you hope that the delegations will go home and act on their learning? What's sort of the next step when they when the light bulb goes off? How does that process continue after that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So our entire team gets involved in kind of the follow-up cultivation. We have a network of over 300 learning tour alumni at this point. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, the, where the rubber hits the road is what do they do when they return? And so we try to lay out kind of a menu of options for how they can get involved in CARES advocacy and our issues. And usually if if it's a member of Congress or their congressional staff, we're talking to them about the importance of U.S. foreign assistance budget, about the importance of of prioritizing gender specifically in the way that we do humanitarian response and development. And we work with them directly on what that looks like in legislation, what that looks like in policy. If it's (coughs) focused... not directly on the Hill or not directly policymakers, they come back so energized to share what they saw and share what they learned. And so we work with them to host community debriefs where they'll, they'll share all the pictures, all the videos from the trip so that they can pull together their communities back at home to talk about what they saw, what they learned and what they felt. And we encourage them to get involved in our advocacy, um, mm-hmm. Make your voice heard as a constituent, come share what you learned with your member of Congress.
0: Yeah. I think the the part of the change making process where you make change very tangible in people's minds. I think that's a, a crucial step that perhaps a lot of maybe younger nonprofits or people in this space might struggle with because. Inevitably, trips cost money and resources, and so CARE is, is in a great position to not only advocate for certain solutions, but also to back up that advocacy work with, with tangible storytelling and experiences for, for people to, to come to appreciate those issues. So, I think that process, I think, is important for our listeners to appreciate because I think it's a very understated component of of this process of changing these, creating movement on these issues.
1: Absolutely. And it's a crucial process of, or crucial component of ensuring that we're decolonizing development. This mm. is not, what we are doing is not privileged people flying in with solutions, right? right? It is well-resourced people and well-resourced countries coming in and saying, what are your challenges? What are your solutions? How can I support and mm-hmm. it's a shift in a lot of people's mind when they think about humanitarian response and development, they think about charity. And that's not what it is. I don't have the solution for a mother and daughter in Haiti. They know their own solutions. They know their challenges better than I do. And so entering what's happening on their voices and their experiences and their leadership is really critical to that shift.
0: It's. A, it seems like a classic question in the nonprofit world of how do you not simply impose a top-down approach to development, but empower people to develop and come out of poverty from the bottom up. And that was on my list of questions, which is how do you ensure that care programs are, on the one hand, resonant with your US stakeholders, like lawmakers who, who might have specific criteria in mind of how this goes about, while also, on the other hand, making sure these programs are sensitive to local circumstances, how do, you, how do you strike that balance and how does CARE and how can nonprofits in general make sure that they're empowering people from the bottom up instead of imposing certain criteria upon them?
1: Yeah, I think it's about sustainability. And the only way, it's not just about being effective, it is too, but if you want your impact to be sustainable, it has to be locally driven. And we see that every day in our work. And that's why CARE prioritizes partnering with local organizations and providing resources, providing technical assistance, but letting them drive the ship. It's also why we prioritizing, prioritize hiring locals for implementing our projects or running, working in our country offices, because local ownership is how you make it sustainable. And then that's how you translate it back to policymakers. If you want the U.S. taxpayer dollars that are going to these programs, which is less than 1% of the total federal budget, do you want them to be effective? Do you want them to have sustainable impact? Well, the only way to do that is to have local ownership and to make sure that they're actually being responsive to the local context.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. I suppose we should step back now, and and now that we've sort of covered one aspect of your work, I wanted to cover sort of a basic question about CARES work in general, because I think Obviously, CARE is one of the most storied nonprofits in the global development space. It recently celebrated 75 years and had this wonderful celebration that I, I watched parts of last night. And I, I think it's important to sort of separate CARE's approach from the approach of other big nonprofits. Maybe Oxfam is one that comes to mind to me. So, how would you sort of distinguish or situate CARE's approach to inequality from, from that of, of similar nonprofits or actors?
1: Yeah. Good question. Care special sauce is a focus on women and girls and it has, that has not always been the case. It was a strategic shift that care made. I 20, 30 years ago, I need to look at the exact date, but 20, 30 years ago, we decided we looked at our programming and we looked at what was most effective and we looked at what where were the gaps in in achieving the goals we wanted to and at the end of the day it was gender you know women and girls are the ones that are often most impacted in crisis they are the ones that are they are they eat last and they eat least when resources are scarce they are the ones pulled out of school and married off when resources are scarce But they are also community leaders. They are the ones that know their neighbors. They are the ones that are taking care of household health, right? They are the ones that understand the challenges most intimately that families are facing. And the power that women and girls have in communities around the world to affect change if they just have the resources is is incredible. And so... Mm -hmm. Care does not just prioritize gender and women and girls because it sounds good and it gives us a special angle. We we made that choice because it was what was effective in the field. And in terms of, again, sustainability and and overall macro level change making, the, the difference that gender equality can have on all of our issues, on poverty, food security, health, humanitarian response, education, economic equality, everything comes back. To when you empower a woman, a girl, or when you ensure they have the resources to empower themselves, it changes a community.
0: That's a common thread in, in a lot of the conversations I've had is the importance of empowering women and girls as sort of the catalyst to solving a wide range of other issues. One one conversation I had that comes to mind is I talked with a a man named John Oldfield, who's an advocate for global clean water. And he made the case, I think a very compelling one for the importance of clean water as a means to empowering women and girls, because it will free up their time to go to school and care for their feminine hygiene and, and other, Mm -hmm. and other things. So that, that's certainly I think a shared sentiment in, in the nonprofit world and the global development world, at least, at least who I've talked to. And I was, I was going to ask the question of within the inequality challenge, is there a certain sub issue that you think is most important? And I, I would venture to guess that that you would say that empowering women and girls is perhaps the best way to, to tackle inequality in a big way. But yeah. I, I guess I would ask the question again of, are there certain issues besides women and girls, empowerment that you think are really central to taking a big chunk out of the inequality challenge?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, this is, this is along the the line of women and girls, but, and this is totally my opinion, not necessarily CARE's opinion, because I think all of the issues we work in, there's a justification to say all of the, each of them is game changing. (laughs) But for me, I've, I've traveled a lot and seen a lot of CARES programming because of the Learning Tours program. And the issue that when I go to bed at night, I think about is child marriage, because that is an issue that impacts a girl for the rest of her life and impacts that family for the rest of her life and impacts a community for the rest of its existence and we're seeing spikes in child marriage right now as a result of of the pandemic and and when when girls get married younger they start having children younger which means they have children more often which means that they're Mental health takes a huge dive they are less likely to get educated which which ultimately impacts their ability to earn any income which ultimately impacts their ability to take care of yeah. the children that they are having more frequently it's just that the, the pile on impacts right the secondary impacts of child marriage just destroys opportunities for entire generations of girls and and if there was one issue that i that to me could change an entire, could change the world if we ended tomorrow. To me, yeah. that would be it.
0: Wow. And how, do, how does care tackle an issue like child marriage, which I think if, if we extend your argument, which I think is a really salient one, the, the way I think of it in my mind is that that's a very complex social issue. That is rooted in perhaps decades or centuries of local tradition, and I was reading a, an article about. It wasn't an article, but it was a book about the, the practice of, genital mutilation in in young girls, and this was in I think sub-Saharan Africa. But these these sorts of issues that perhaps if solved would indeed take a big chunk out of global inequality, but they're very fierce, there are very fierce social barriers that stand in the way. So how how does care confront that, that these issues that are not just political or economic, but social and cultural?
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is social behavior change, and that is tough. (laughs) Right. I think, two two key elements that CARE has found important. One, again, is that localization. It's not me coming in and saying, this practice is bad and wagging my finger at communities, right? It's locals that CARE is hiring from that community that know the faith leaders, know the community leaders, know the parents, know the schools, know the kids, and know what will resonate with, with families that They've lived next to their entire life. Those are the messengers. Those are the, the community change agents. And so I think as much as you can, making sure that it is locally driven, A, and B, engaging men and boys. And so much of when we talk about gender, when we talk about women and girls, it results in, okay, well, we just need more programming for women and girls. Mm-hmm. And I think to support that all day long, but care is found. The key special sauce is you have to engage the men and boys. You have to bring them to the table, and 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 so when you when you do both of those at the same time in safe spaces with messengers that are authentic, that's when you see that's when you see the magic happen. And you see over years, generations really start to shift their attitudes.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I will, I'll just give a, a sort of summary of, of what we covered so far. I think a lot of what we've covered is more general questions about CARES work and sort of about what you've done. And I think, uh, of course, we started with your your great episode in the, your trip to Port-au-Prince. And then we talked about the importance of locally driven work as the the key uh key to CARES approach, but CARES special sauce also being the focus on women and girls. You identified women and girls, but also child marriage as as really central issues in the global inequality fight. So, now I wanted to delve more specifically into how listeners can sort of learn from your career and your experiences in this space to, to make the biggest difference on global inequality. And... I wanted to ask about, to start, the nature of CARES advocacy work. And I, I saw that you were also a, a senior legislative assistant on the Hill at one point. And so I would imagine you have this very nuanced perspective on how to get lawmakers on board for for changing the status quo and in global inequality. So what does it take focusing specifically on federal advocacy, what does it take to convince lawmakers to take a long view and to support or fund global development programs like CARES?
1: Yeah, good question. Yeah. So I, I would say two things, direct experience as much as possible and hearing from their constituents. Uh, I actually, I came to CARE from the Hill because I went on a learning tour. (laughs) I, Uh my boss on a learning tour to Kenya and Malawi. And then, and it was life-changing. It was a life-changing experience for me and for, for my boss. And then was so energized by the program and what CARE was doing that I ended up at CARE six months later. (laughs) Right. And so, I mean, I think it's not, you can't get every member, you can't get every staffer to go with you to Bangladesh refugee camp, right? But there are all kinds of ways that you can break down those those walls and you can, especially in a world make it clear and especially in a pandemic world where it is very clear just how small and connected our world is um, you can bring those voices to the forefront and try to make it as real for members of congress as possible because if you're putting a fact sheet with stats on it that's you're you're missing the point right yeah so that would be number one is, is as much direct experience as we can get for those that are making decisions as possible about the impact their decisions have. And then the second one is hearing from constituents. When I started on the hill, I was doing constituent mail and I right. my boss <laughs> I reported to my boss on a weekly basis, what are the topics we're hearing about from our constituents? And any member who is worth their worth their salt, that that is what they should be doing on a regular basis. Yeah. And so it can feel like there really is no way to make an influence sometime on something so big as Congress and federal and federal policy. But to be to be totally honest, a lot of co- members of Congress don't hear from their constituents that much because. Yeah because I think there is unfortunately kind of this placated kind of feeling that it won't have an impact. It does have an impact. I can tell you from working on the Hill, it had an impact. I can tell you from now, helping to mobilize CARES advocates for our constituent outreach that we do, that it has an impact. And there is no natural constituency for global issues. That's the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Is if we're talking about domestic, education, you get the teachers in there. If we're talking about healthcare policy, you got the doctors in there, right? There is no natural local constituency for global issues. And so it requires motivated, passionate constituents to take it up and to get involved with organizations like CARE that have these networks and develop these massive hill days where we it easy for you to make your voice heard with your member of Congress. If you've got the passion and you've got the interest, you got to be sharing it with, uh, with folks on the Hill.
0: Yeah. So I talked to uh, a man named Mark Reynolds and he's the executive director of citizens climate lobby. And this whole conversation harkens back to a lot of what he said. And, and one of the keys he identified to effective advocacy of federal lawmakers is listening. And he he said, basically, that if you go in with an approach of trying to educate lawmakers, it it may run afoul because you're not appreciating why they take the stances they do. And and it helps to perhaps adopt their perspective. So, I'm curious what sorts of, along the same lines, what sorts of leadership qualities do you think are most helpful for for people going into Capitol Hill with advocacy as the goal? What what qualities lend themselves well to achieving what what you say of of giving of giving lawmakers this direct experience and helping them hear from constituents? What qualities serve really well in this space?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I would add on to listening that it's about relationship building. It's not; It should not be approached as a one-off 30 minutes, okay, done. What you're doing is building a relationship with that office. And that means when they do something good, you're giving them some social media love. You're writing them a note saying, I love that the member just voted this way. Thank you so much. And then that means when they're doing something you don't want, you've already built this foundation of trust and kind of collaboration to make it a lot easier to to make your ask and to, to constructively criticize when they're not doing what you want. And so I would think of it as a relationship and an ongoing one that you can use media for, you can use direct content or contact with their constituent services to keep it going, show up at their events when they're in their district, meet them face to face and make it clear that you are not necessarily just someone barreling in with a bunch of asks that are political unreasonable, right? But you are there to be a partner within in building the policy that you think their district needs to needs.
0: That's great. I, I think I really want to sort of underscore what what we just covered for our listeners because I think advocacy is one of the most effective paths that you can take on a daily basis to affect whatever change you want. And so I I think the concept of relationship building, it's not one I've heard very often, but one that I think our listeners should, should sort of focus on because this is not a rushed process. These are very deep rooted, complex global Mm -hmm. issues that, that will take a long time to tackle. And that's not to say that, you should try to achieve the most in the least amount of time. You should you should try that. But you should also recognize that the systems of power and the institutions that control aid money and things like that are are built to be very slow. And yes. government it has certain pitfalls, if you could say, in that sense. And so focusing on long-term relationships, I think is a really great insight.
1: Yeah and and don't get discouraged i mean to your point it is a slow process
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: policymaking funding is a slow process that has a million different kind of stakeholders and components and reasons why members do the things that they do. Yeah. And so if you made an ask and they didn't do what you wanted, it is totally fair to say I just want to understand the member's position on this a little bit more mm-hmm. um, rather than packing up your toys and going home. It is it has to be a sustained engagement because it, <laughs> it takes time. <laughs>
0: yeah for sure on the keeping on the subject of advocacy I wanted to ask about go back to your your teaching experience because I, I'm sure it complements your advocacy work well in some ways and so I wanted to ask how, how do you teach people to care about issues like global inequality? And this this doesn't have to be your member of Congress, but maybe it's a family member who you say, hey, let's donate $100 to care. Or maybe it's a community leader, your local city councilor, who you, know, you want to get on board with something in the global inequality space. What, what lessons have you learned in your teaching experience about not making people care, but sort of planting that seed in people's minds such that they care about issues like inequality?
1: Yeah, well, you have to know your audience. That that is number one. And what is going to pique their interest? Um, What are they passionate about? And that's true for family members as it is for members of Congress. There is always something related, I think, to global issues that most people in the U.S. care about. And so and, and and it's easy to make that jump once what is that issue they care about or what is that thing that they're passionate about or what is that thing that they've experienced in their own life and they just haven't thought about it in a context of a low income country. And so I think knowing your audience and what's going to resonate with them is really important. As you mentioned, again, listening and making it clear, this is a dialogue and a conversation. I want to understand your perspective as much as you understand mine. And then I would say storytelling, because that's when these, these, these issues are very complicated. They're, they're multidimensional. They're, they're structural inequality on top of structural inequality. It's really difficult to parse them apart. And so instead of just talking about the issues in the, in the abstract, what is the story of someone that you just read in a news article that you could share, mm-hmm. right? Go to CARES website. We've got stories on stories gun stories right. <laughs> that, that demonstrate how all of these complex issues found and what it actually looks like in someone's real day, daily life.
0: Mm-hmm. I think storytelling is such a valuable skill in it, in any sector, but in, in the public sector, if you run for office, it, it's important in order to connect your policy positions to people's lives and to convince them that that you're you're on the right side of things, in the nonprofit world, it, it seems important because you are trying to tackle a, an issue that is very much composed of thousands of different stories that that may be very, uh, should I say, quiet. They're they're not well told. They they might not be well understood, but they're compelling nonetheless. So, what are what are some of your Best practices in storytelling.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say first is if you can ever let the 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 person themselves tell their own story, that should always be the goal. It's not always the case, but that you, that you can. But whether it's watching a video, share, oh, excuse me, sharing a video rather than retelling the story yourself, uh, I think the more that you mm. can the experience on the actual storyteller, the better. Um, So that would be number one. And then I think when you're using a story to kind of bring people along to an understanding, you want to make the personal connection too tell the story. And depending on what it is, it can feel very, it could feel very foreign or far away to someone in the United States, if it is the story of just challenges or a reality that they have not experienced. But there's always the connection to something they have, there's always a connection to something that's going on in your own community, that you can tell the story and then say, and that made me think about, when I was in between health insurance and how difficult it was for me to get maternal health services, right? Or that made me think about how important it was for, for my my pulling my family out of poverty or getting to where I wanted to be in life to be able to go to school and have access to education. There's always a way that you can make that personal connection, even if it's someone on the other side of the world. And the more we can do that, the better. I mean, as, as I said before, the pandemic has shown it's a small world and it's a connected world. And and folks need to understand, the more people can understand that, I think the better we'll, we'll all be.
0: Yeah. So at this point, I'll, I'll offer one more summary of of what we just covered in, in terms of advocacy. I, I think, again, you, you made some great points about in order to get a lawmaker to care about, say, global development, You need to give them that direct experience with that issue. And and you also need to connect that issue to their constituents, because that is the process by which lawmakers learn to care about certain issues. And then we touched on relationship building, which I, I would say is one of the big takeaways of, of, uh, of our talk so far. And then of course, your your teaching experience. I forgot to mention what it is, but you you taught kindergarten. I saw in New York City, and then you you were an undergrad teacher at George Washington. So you you have this this great background, and, and true to that, you gave some great insights about knowing your audience, the practice of listening and storytelling. And I'm I'm happy to to carry those those insights forward with our listeners as as sort of keys to good advocacy on these issues. So what I'll do now is I'll, I'll ask one more question about sort of a a macro level question about nonprofit work versus other paths. And then I'll, I'll ask my, my closing question. So I wanted to ask about sort of how you compare nonprofit work to other potential paths to solving issues like inequality because certainly nonprofit work has its strengths. It's it's very attuned to the issue it's working on. It doesn't have a, a profit motive, it doesn't have to answer to shareholders. But on the other hand, you could identify certain limitations to the nonprofit world. Funding is is perhaps a perennial issue that that you run into. So for listeners who want to who want to enter into global inequality as a, a field for example do you recommend nonprofit work do you recommend working for a large nonprofit like care or perhaps is is a smaller nonprofit more compelling how do you how do you compare all the different paths the professional paths available to to tackling global inequality
1: yeah yeah good question I would first say that I think there are so many avenues, so many different careers where you can yourself bring a perspective of global equality and global social justice work to it. And so I think for me, it's less about where's the job that allows me to do this and more about how can I do this in my current job? Because there is a role in every sector. Uh, some of care's most impactful work has been in partnership with corporations not just as sponsors but also as social change makers changing their own internal corporate practices to set a new bar in the country where they're operating mm-hmm. uh, so so that that would be one is i think you can you can bring it into anywhere i'm a big fan of direct service as well and that's how i view teaching and that's why i landed i think in the role that i'm in right now where i sit in between kind of macro level p- policy and micro level connecting with the people that care serves and and yeah. I figured out that that's where I want to be is because I did both direct services and worked at a and worked in the government and so I encourage folks to try all the different avenues try out all the different avenues that get at that issue that you care about find that issue you care about and then try all of the different ways to get at it and that's how you'll figure out which one works for you.
0: Yeah, I I, I love that because you you sort of made a, a switch that I I don't hear often, which is how can I do this in my current job? That those are the words you used, and yeah. in in a lot of the conversations I've had, it when I ask a similar question, they'll say, oh, this nonprofit work is the most compelling path or being a social entrepreneur is, is perhaps most compelling, but, but sort of the point you're making, and I think it's a a great one is do what you enjoy, what whatever path feels right to you and then work hard to channel that work into the issues you care about. And and so I think that's a different take on that question that I think our listeners will will appreciate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a role for every sector to play. And so it's just figuring out what is the role for for my sector, for my job, for my boss. So what mm-hmm. can we be doing and then be that loud voice?
0: Yeah, that's great. So I, I think we've covered a, a, our bases in terms of CARES work and, and some specific questions about how to best be a leader in the nonprofit world. We talked a lot about teaching and advocacy. So I wanted to ask my closing questions. Now, the The first is talking more about what citizens can do in the span of a single day to help solve global inequality. And I think advocacy is perhaps a great answer to that question, perhaps donations to certain organizations or volunteering as as you have experience doing. So just to, you know, clarify for our listeners, how can people solve global inequality or at least work to help solve it in their everyday lives and not so much in the long professional sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, good, great question. Well, one, I, of course, would say sign up to be a care advocate. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Careaction.org is where our advocates go to to do something as easy as clicking to sign a petition or something as involved as flying to D.C. every June to join Mm us. There's really just a range of ways that you can easily get involved. Uh, Careaction.org. Be a smart and informed consumer. Think about where you're spending your money. Think about what impact that is having in the world. And is that driving change that you want or is it reinforcing inequality would be would be number two. And then. Think about what you're sharing with your friends and your community, right? We're all on social media. We all know the incredible impact that that has to to make or break elections, make or break economy. (laughs) Um, And just sharing content and being a voice that amplifies stories that are not told enough is critical. And so look i love a I love a good cat meme like everyone else, right? <laughs> but at least once a week, are look for a story that is not being told. Look for a story that your friends are not sharing, and get in there and change the conversation.
0: That's a great segue to the the last question I have and I asked this question of all our guests, and it's a very broad question about how do you how do you change? How do you change the world? And so, it's the question is: What do you tell people who want to change the world but who don't know how? What's what? What is the formula that you can sort of piece together from from your years in in global development and in other and in other areas about about changing the world about about doing a great deal of good for others? What what's the key to doing that?
1: Yeah. I, one, I think is just being informed, um, particularly when it comes to global issues. Unfortunately, you, you have to seek that out. Sometimes you have to seek out information about what's happening in the world, particularly in a U.S context where our, our media is so. US focused. That's not the case in other countries. <laughs> and and so making sure that you're challenging yourself to learn about something that isn't necessarily right in front of you uh, is number one. And then I think the more that you're informed, the more you're compelled to talk about what and and that's how you that's how you change over generations. Right. When you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to your family about what you've learned and helping them to also challenging them to to be informed global citizens, I think is key. And then starting local there. You don't have to be flying to Sierra Leone to set up a clinic. Right. You can you can start with your neighbor, start in your backyard, start with your local city council. And the more that You are, even at a local level, pushing issues like breaking down systemic inequality, like global economic equality, like rethinking our systems of of power and influence in a way that shifts it. All of that contributes to the global cause, right? And you can do that in your own backyard. You can do that with your your church and having those conversations and challenging the way things are are being set up. You can do that at your kids' schools, uh, having them, asking them to focus on certain topics during certain months, right? Or making sure that there are community engagement opportunities around certain issues. All of that, it doesn't need to be passing a piece of legislation, It just needs to be educating yourself and then figuring it out how you can educate your sphere around you.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful way to conclude. I I commend you not only for, of course, giving very thoughtful answers, but being very organized about them too, because (laughs) (laughs) it isn't always the case that I, I talk with someone and I can very easily follow what they say, but you're very good at that. And I'm sure it comes from your, your teaching experience and your advocacy work. But when you say, well, there are three things, and then I, I write out my three bullet points and that's it. And they're, they're very consistent. I am
1: someone, in the, listen, I love a list. And I, I love a list. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, I think the insights are, are right there for people to, glean or to, to latch on to. And, and I think this was a wonderful conversation for me and oh. about, about global development, about the importance of advocacy, about teaching, building relationships. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Rachel Hall. Rachel, it, it was an absolute delight. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, Will.
0: My pleasure.